in the horror genre. I'm your host, Nicole, and it's time to share another dark tale. rapidly deepened. The glades grew dark. The crackling of the fire and the wash of little waves along the rocky lake shore were the only sounds audible. The wind had dropped with the sun, and in all that vast world of branches, nothing stirred. Any moment, it seemed, the woodland gods, who are to be worshipped in silence and loneliness, might stretch their mighty and terrific outlines among the trees. Algernon Blackwood, The Wendigo, 1910. There are many monsters in American folklore. Um, We have Bigfoot, Jersey Devil, even the Mothman from the 60s. But perhaps the oldest and I think the most interesting is The Wendigo. In Algonquin folklore, the Wendigo is a mythical man-eating monster or evil spirit native to the northern forests of the Great Lakes region of the United States and Canada. Although depictions can vary somewhat, most of the accounts all share the view that the Wendigo is a cannibalistic supernatural being. They are strongly associated with winter, the north, coldness, famine, and starvation. So the Wendigo has long been blamed for acts of cannibalism. That's, you know, kind of the main thing about the Wendigo. People turn to consuming other humans once they've been either touched by the Wendigo or when they eat other people, they're inviting the Wendigo spirit to inhabit them. So that's kind of the the two uh, branches of the Wendigo legend. A lot of the accounts say that once someone succumbs to the Wendigo, their hunger for human flesh cannot be satisfied. It manifests a physical change in their body and turns them into, essentially turns them into monsters. Um, The Wendigo is described as a tall, gaunt creature, basically looking like a starvation victim. And often he is portrayed as having long, large, like ram's horns. So that's pretty creepy. You can imagine being in the woods, in the snow, in some remote part of the world, and the forest is quiet, and then you hear this tall, skinny, horned creature coming through the forest at your most vulnerable moment. So it's it's pretty creepy. And I feel like a lot of people know about the Wendigo, but not everyone. Like, you know, everyone knows what Bigfoot is or even, you know, Nessie, the Loch Ness Monster, but not everybody knows what the Wendigo is or if they have heard of it, they don't know all about it. There have been... Lots of strange but true cases of cannibalism in the world. So we have the history of the Wendigo and then we have these true accounts of cannibalism. And I want to talk about, you know, both of those things and then kind of how they've crystallized together in modern media, both um, written and, of course, film. The most common depictions of the Wendigo take place, of course, in the mountains 
a lot of true acts of cannibalism have taken place in the mountains, but there are actually a couple that took place at sea, which I feel like the harshness of the sea is similar to the harshness of a snowy mountain. It's a different extreme. It's heat instead of cold, but you're still stranded, you know, with kind of no hope. So the first at sea account that I want to talk about is the Raft of the Medusa. So in 1816, a ship named the Medusa crashed and they didn't have enough light boats for everyone aboard, which seems to be a common theme with like ocean stories, but um, they didn't have enough lifeboats. And so they constructed a raft and put 146 people on it. Um, But then they encountered some rough waters or something. So they cut the raft loose. And so this raft of 146 people is just adrift in the ocean. So, of course, without enough food and water, they turned on each other, killing and feeding on the weakest. So 13 days later, only 15 survivors out of 146 were recovered. Now, they didn't all eat each other. A lot of people fell off the raft, jumped into the ocean, um, but they were, in fact, cannibalizing the weakest people on board. (laughs) Another interesting tale at sea is the Mignonette in 1884. They had a crew of four sailing from Southampton to Sydney, which a ship of that size, it was like a little yacht, should not have been making that voyage, but they were. Um, So they were struck by a large wave and capsized and the crew of four uh, fled on a small lifeboat. And eventually they decided to eat the weaker cabin boy. Now there are conflicting accounts about this one. Um, People are not sure if he was in a coma because he'd been drinking seawater, so that's why he was sick. Um, Some say, well, he was in a coma from drinking seawater, so they decided to consume him. Others say, no, he was not in a coma. He was alive, and they just murdered him. And they were also rescued after 24 days at sea. So in both of those cases, you know, foul play was afoot. But there have been a couple of cases in the mountains where people simply um, feasted on those who were already dead merely to survive. The most popular in the mountain cannibalism story, of course, is the Donner Party, which took place in winter of 1846. So two families were traveling from California to California from Missouri. They decided to take a new route, but they got delayed due to, you know, frontier stuff. So they were delayed, plus they got hit by an early snowstorm in the Rocky Mountains. And so they were stranded in a snowstorm with nothing. I don't, they probably didn't even know how much further they had to go. And so they fed on people who were already deceased merely to survive. And then also one that I just recently found out about was the Andes crash in October, 1972. So 45 people are on board a charter flight and due to a pilot error, they hit a glacier in the remote Andes mountains. So 28 people survived the crash and only 16 were rescued 72 days later. According to the documentary that I watched, at first, they didn't really talk about it. They just said, oh, we ate plants, we ate roots. Uh, That's how we stayed alive. And reporters and doctors and and other people started asking questions. Like, it's not possible for you to have survived on that. Um, Because of course they were afraid of public outcry. And so they did eventually admit that they had um, eaten people again who had already died and apparently they even had a pact and said you know if I die you can eat me to survive 
so, you know, cannibalism is one of those things that it's horrible and no one wants to think about it, but it has been resorted to merely as a survival tactic from time to time. And I think we as a society, we don't want to think about it, but we do accept it when it comes down to that. Uh, We don't condone murdering someone (laughs) to eat them, but um, in these two cases where people were already deceased and the rest of the party was just trying to survive, we, you know, we tend to accept that as a culture. And I believe that the Pope even pardoned the uh, the people in the Andes crash. They were Catholic. So he was like, you know, it's cool. (laughs) So all of the cases that I've mentioned up until this point have been for survival whether they ate someone who already passed or they took an action to kill someone, they all were just trying to survive. But there have been a few cases of cannibalism that were just used as murder. You know, of course, uh, we've all heard of Jeffrey Dahmer. Serial killer specifically killed people and then consumed at least parts of their flesh. Um, And I'm not going to go all into Dahmer because, you know, most people know that history and most people remember that news footage of like them taking those barrels out of those big plastic barrels out of his house. And we were told there were human remains in there. And it's just very creepy. But um, a lesser known case of cannibalism as murder was in 1879, a Native American, his name was Swift Runner. He cannibalized his whole family and used the harsh winter as an excuse. He came out of the forest. This was in uh, Canada, I believe. But he came out of the forest to the police and said, uh, we had a hard winter. My whole family died. Only I survived. And um, at first they believed his story and then things weren't adding up and they were looking at him saying, you know, he's this, he's, he does not look like a man who has suffered starvation over the winter. How is it that he's the only one that survived? They started to question him and he willingly took them back to his camp. And when they got back to his campsite, they discovered a very grisly scene. There were bones everywhere, some were broken, like broken, there were broken skulls, some were hollowed out which is uh, indicative of sucking out the marrow of the bone. They also found a pot of human fat. So it was clear that he had just eaten his family. At that point, Swift Runner, being Native American, familiar with the Wendigo legend, used the Wendigo as an excuse. He said, the Wendigo came to me in the winter and compelled me to consume my family. All of these real life stories of cannibalism combined with the Wendigo legend has crystallized into some pretty interesting and scary stories over the years. The very first example of the Wendigo in literature is probably the short story, The Wendigo by Algernon Blackwood published in 1910. This story by Algernon Blackwood, it has been influential on many things. Um, He inspired other short stories, which in turn inspired the evil spirit in Pet Cemetery, which we will talk about more later. Algernon Blackwood's short story, The Wendigo, also inspired my very first experience with the Wendigo legend, which was the story in Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, which I read probably in the late 
80s or early 90s. The main character in that story is DeFago, and he is one of the characters in The Wendigo by Algernon Blackwood. There's a part in that scary stories to tell in the dark where um, you hear him being swept away and he's talking about his burning feet of fire. And that is taken directly from Algernon Blackwood's story. Even as a child, that was one of the scariest stories to me in that collection. When I came across the Blackwood story last year, I was just very excited to read it. And I think you can find a reading of it on YouTube or you can even find like a free PDF to download. Um, of course, it's early 1900s, so it's a little dry, but I still, I found it to be a very interesting read. You should watch it with like, you know, on a quiet night with not a lot of activity happening and it's still pretty creepy. As I mentioned, that short story ultimately led to the uh, influence of Pet Cemetery. Pet Cemetery is one of my favorite horror movies and it is my favorite book. That book and movie both just deal with some really just unsettling things. Pet Cemetery is not an, an obvious choice for the Wendigo. It's a very subtle use. In the film, they never even name it that. You don't know that's what it is when uh, Judd and Lewis are on their way to the Pet Cemetery with church and you hear this, you hear just noises out in the woods. And in the movie, you do not know what's out there. Um, in the book, Judd later talks about the Micmacs, their traditions and, you know, their burial rites. And he specifically names the Wendigo. He says that they used to, they, there used to be stories of Wendigo, the Wendigo up in these woods. Later on in the book, Lewis even encounters the creature and they talk about its, its smile and its horns. And this is very, very creepy. And so we'll see if they decide to incorporate that into uh, the movie that's coming out in April. Um, also, just a heads up, I will be doing an entire episode on Pet Cemetery, the book, the 1989 movie, and the new movie. In May, I'll be talking about all of those things. And so I think that Pet Cemetery uses the Wendigo legend to very great effect, even though it's only minimally mentioned. Again, the Wendigo, when he touches you, when the monster touches you, you know, you become obsessed uh, with consumption and it takes you over and you can't stop even if you want to. And so even though there's no cannibalism per se in Pet Cemetery, you know, once Lewis has been there, he's compelled to keep going there. He's um, kind of, you know, possessed by the idea that he can fix things. And then of course, Gage comes back, his wife comes back, the cat comes back and there's something wrong with them. And Gage and Rachel in particular want to kill humans. So the insinuation is that when you bury something in the pet cemetery, the spirit of the Wendigo enters them and that's what brings them back. That is what is wrong with them when they come back. Judd says the person that you put in the ground in the pet cemetery is not the person that comes back. You know, we are to believe that that is because the Wendigo lived up there. He touched the ground, the ground was sour. And so now when you bury something there, the Wendigo spirit inhabits their body and comes back. Sometimes dad is better. Indians knew that. They stopped using that burial ground. The ground went sour. Don't think about doing it, Lewis. The place gets holier. The place is evil. Sometimes that is better. There are a couple of movies and TV shows that use the Wendigo in a more direct way. One of those is Ravenous. Uh, Ravenous came out in 1999, was directed by a woman, Antonia Bird. 
starred Guy Pierce, and it is a quirky little movie, but it is about cannibalism during the Mexican-American War, basically in a nutshell. It's a little bit of a black comedy. Um, I have a whole kind of detailed review and I'll post that later on, but this captain, he survived a grizzly battle and he has been sent to an outpost, a remote outpost. You know, it's snowy, it's cold. I don't remember exactly where, but all the people that the army doesn't want to deal with, they send to this outpost. And so there are lots of like strange people out there. So he's out there, a stranger shows up at their door and he says, we were basically on a wagon train in the mountains. We became stranded. The man who was leading us killed all of my counterparts and ate them. This story may sound a little familiar. Stranger shows up, says everyone's dead. I'm the sole survivor. This movie Ravenous was obviously directly influenced by the tale of Swift Runner because the stranger that shows up at this military camp takes them back to his campsite. And what do they discover? A grisly scene, bones, obvious slaughter. And it becomes clear that the stranger who showed up at their door is actually the killer who cannibalized everyone. And, you know, chaos ensues from there. It's, it's a we- it's a weird little movie, but fun. What Ravenous does is it kind of embodies the kind of mean-spirited nature of the Wendigo. Because even in Pet Cemetery, uh, the book, not the movie, but in the book, there's a part where Timothy Baderman comes back, which is the scariest scene in the whole book. And he is he's mean-spirited. He knows things about everyone. He's kind of tongue-in-cheek and jokey, but he's very mean-spirited. And Ravenous is very much the same way. You see this draw to like come to the dark side eat your eat your counterparts and give in to the darkness and you know become one of us basically Mm. you know ben franklin once said eat to live don't live to eat Well, it's an easy decision, Boyd. You can either famine or feast. Live or die. Like I said, it's the the Wendigo has been. It's it's always seen as an evil spirit, and manipulation and possession are major themes within the Wendigo legend. And so, in Ravenous, I mean, that is at the forefront, front and center. That is exactly what you see our main character, Captain Boyd, we watch him kind of struggling with that. You know, do I maintain what I know is right or do I give in to this evil spirit and, you know, become spirit of, you know, greed and possession and consumption. Another great depiction of the Wendigo in media is a little short called Skin and Bones on an anthology series called Fear Itself. Fear Itself was basically a spinoff of Masters of Horror produced by Mick Garris, where um, each week it was a different story uh, directed by a different Master of Horror. And Skin and Bones is a Wendigo story, a fantastic Wendigo story. So a family lives on a ranch and the dad goes off. I can't remember why. He goes off on a hunting trip or something and they told him not to. It's There's going to be a snowstorm. Don't do it. He goes anyway. And 
he's lost. They think he's lost. And he eventually comes back looking horrible, looking frostbit, looking starved, just sickly. And it becomes apparent over the next few days as they're nursing him back to health that he is not the man that left. Something has gone wrong. The man is portrayed by the great character actor, Doug Jones. Of course, Doug Jones was Billy Butcherson in Hocus Pocus. He was in the recently Academy Award winning The Shape of Water. He was the creature. And his portrayal of this man being possessed by the Wendigo spirit is just amazing. He's a very tall, tall, thin man. And um, they give him these very like long fingers And we watch him just wreak havoc on his family. So again, it's this theme of you go out into the wilderness, the Wendigo overtakes you, and then that's who comes back. You know, it's this just this idea of the good human that you knew is not the person that you're now experiencing. We got lost. Turned all around. Had to hole up in a a shallow cave to stay warm. Oh, there's more and more wind and, and, and snow. Chuck and Billy went for help. Never came back. It was just me and Jasper in the cave. I couldn't even keep a fire lit. And then I remember a voice at my ear and in my head. I'll save you. Just let me in. That's what the voice said. You just have to eat. Jasper was so weak by then. I couldn't help him. I I had to eat. I had to. Um, another couple of things I want to mention. A little little offshoots of the Wendigo. The TV show Hannibal, which I've mentioned before. Of course, Hannibal is a cannibal. (laughs) And I don't believe the books or the movies even, there's no mention of the Wendigo. That's not even, that's just not part of the the lore. But um, in the TV show, they don't talk about the Wendigo, but there are times when Will Graham sees Hannibal as the Wendigo, basically. And I didn't realize this until I started doing research. I just thought it was an interesting visual. But, you know, when he sees him and he's skinny and he's all black and he's got the horns... Uh, or even when he sees like the the stag with the horns. I mean, that's all Wendigo imagery. So I think in the, the TV show, they pulled it just strictly as a visual. But when you know the history of the Wendigo and, and you put it with that story, it becomes kind of interesting. And um, another uh, story to check out. This is not a film or a book. It's an audio story. It's called The Whistlers. It originally aired on the No Sleep podcast. I think it's like two hours long, but oh, what what a great story. 
It's about some people who go on a camping expedition and, you know, I'm not going to give you details, but things go wrong and they're stranded and it's cold. (laughs) Typical Wendigo story. And they're fleeing the Whistlers and we don't ever see the Whistlers. We don't really know what they are. We just know they're a legend that these people went to investigate. It's very, there's a lot of like near Wendigo, you know, language and history in there. So that one you can listen to on the No Sleep podcast, or I believe it's also uh, on YouTube, but it's worth a listen, especially if you have a road trip, give that a listen. So to wrap things up, I just want to say that I am very uh, happy to be at the end of this because I have been fascinated by the Wendigo legend for a long time. And I have been trying to compile my thoughts about the Wendigo and cannibalism for a while. I initially started writing about it over a year ago and had been thinking about it long before that. So I think the Wendigo is so fascinating and frightening for a couple reasons. Both the Wendigo legend and real life accounts of cannibalism tap into the most primal core of humanity that, you know, live or die survival. In our modern day society with resources so easily accessible, things like injury, disease and famine seem really far away, but they were very real horrors for people living in the harsh environments where the legend first was born. The stories that take us back to these places and put us in the shoes of those who are at their most vulnerable, desperate point are horrifying. And they present us with the one simple question, what links will you go to to survive? History has answered that question, teaching us that cannibalism can either be a tragic necessity or a more evil predatory act. Either way, the Wendigo has helped us put a face on that particular horror and has served to help us have a conversation about one of the darkest corners of human experience. Thanks for tuning in. You can find the show on Instagram and Facebook at Light and Shadow Pod. Sign up to become a supporter on Patreon for early access to all episodes and more. Please rate, review, and subscribe to help other people find the show. Until next time, stay spooky.